Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard and today is Saturday, October 8th, 2022. It's been 3,143 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 226 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Our chief content officer is traveling for a personal matter. You can actually see what he's been up to on TikTok. So today's report will be brief and not include some of our usual features. We thank you for your understanding. Let's go ahead and get started with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, conflict within the Kremlin among military leaders has spilled over into the public sphere, and another Russian general has been fired due to losses in Ukraine. Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu remains at significant risk of being fired, as President Putin appears to be setting him up to be blamed for the failed special military operation. Second, our assessment that the Kremlin's crisis in the information space is damaging Russian President Vladimir Putin's reputation was accurate, with infighting expanding to his ministers. Third, We maintain our assessment that Russia is incapable of responding simultaneously to three counteroffensives in Luhansk, Kharkiv, and Kherson. Fourth, we maintain that if a Russian force of company size or larger surrenders in northern Kherson, it will create a cascade of surrendering Russian troops. Fifth, we maintain that those mass surrenders could become a logistical problem for Ukraine, which could overwhelm the ongoing counteroffensive. Sixth, we maintain that using tactical nuclear weapons on the battlefield is highly unlikely, as it would require striking what the Kremlin believes is Russian soil, and Russian forces are incapable of fighting in a conventional environment, let alone a CBRN setting. That's chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear. Seventh, We maintain Russia's mobilization efforts are ineffective due to corruption, a lack of preparation, violation of the social contract with the Russian people, and conscripts being sent en masse to Ukraine without vital equipment or training. Eighth, in our assessment, there is a heightened risk of terror attacks on cities in central and western Ukraine through the weekend with the ratification of sham referendum borders. To be explicitly clear, though, We have no belief or concern that would include weapons of mass destruction. Ninth, we maintain we are in the mutually assured destruction instability paradox due to irresponsible language from the Kremlin, looming decisions from Moscow leadership, 
and the deteriorating kinetic warfare situation for Russian troops in Ukraine. And finally, we maintain our assessment that the Russian military in Ukraine is combat-destroyed and has no meaningful way to respond to the ongoing and accelerating collapse on multiple fronts. Conscripts that were rushed to the Donbass in the past week have not slowed the deterioration and are not contributing to improving combat power. Let's get some regional updates, starting with the Kherson counteroffensive and Mykolaiv. The General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, maintained tight operational security. Ukrainian forces have entered an operational pause as they consolidate their gains, work to establish new fire bases, and protect their new ground lines of communication. Those are called G-locks, and they're supply lines. The Russian information space has settled after several days of panic, but continues to provide conflicting information. Operational Command South, or OCS, reported that Russian forces attempted to advance toward Davidi Brid. Based on terrain analysis, Russian troops continue to occupy Bruskinsk or Ishenka Bizvodne. In our assessment, a lot of maps have the line of conflict too close to Davidi Brid, as Russian troops are almost certainly not sitting in the middle of wheat fields. Ukraine and Russia are fighting to control Kostromka, with Russian forces occupying the town. At the start of the second wave of the Kherson counteroffensive, Ukraine occupied Bezimen, helping define where the current line of conflict is located. The Russian Ministry of Defense claims Ukrainian forces don't control Bezimen, but did not provide any video or photo evidence. Ukrainian forces have liberated Trifonivka and were confirmed to be in Novakamyanka, where Russian soldiers were captured. There is consensus in the information space that Ukrainian forces have advanced south of Dudchene, but that's where the clarity ends. We believe the reports of fighting on the edge of or within Milova are overstating the Ukrainian advance. In the western part of Kherson, there are renewed claims that Russian forces withdrew from Snikhorivka, but we cannot verify the report's veracity. Given the natural boundaries to the west and north, it seems unlikely Russian forces would just abandon the settlement. Pro-Russian mill blogger Ridovka reported Ukrainian forces were advancing on Maksimivka. That's about 30 kilometers north of Kherson. Northwest of Kherson, Russian forces are fighting to retake control of Ternovipodi, advancing from Zeleny High. This region has been a no-man's land. We've tweaked our map on the line of conflict based on verifiable intelligence. Pro-Russian mill blogger War Gonzo claimed that Ukraine had liberated Pravdine and Soldatsky. The GSAFU has not confirmed that Pravdine was liberated, and the settlement has seen heavy fighting for control for weeks. Despite the claim, we're not prepared to update the map on that one. Repeated attacks on Novakakhovka were reported within the town and on the partial repair of the bridge at the Kakhovka Dam. Serhi Khlan, Kherson Oblast Military Administration advisor, reported Russia was moving reinforcements from Novakakhovka to Berislav. Russian troops appear to be establishing a new defensive line, which aligns with our earlier assessment that falling back to Vesele 
as had been suggested, was untenable. The Ukrainian Air Force performed 15 airstrikes, and ground forces carried out 360 fire missions. OCS didn't indicate targets because of operational security, but social media reports stated that Russian troop and ammunition concentrations in Borosensk, Novokakhovka, and Chernobyevka were hit. Our assessment here? We maintain that Russian troops will find it challenging to establish defensive lines with the Ukrainian military pressing on the line of conflict. Let's move on to Dnipropetrovsk and northern Zaporizhia. The situation at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, or ZNPP, continued to deteriorate with renewed shelling. The 150-kilovolt line that supports Reactor 6 was damaged during the attack, which struck an industrial area near the plant. Five diesel generators supported the Reactor 6 cooling system, while operators worked to reroute power from the other reactors at the plant. International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, Director General Rafael Grossi said, quote, Again and again, the plant's courageous, skilled, and experienced operators find solutions to overcome the severe problems that keep occurring because of the conflict. However, this is not a sustainable way to run a nuclear power plant. There is an urgent need to create a more stable environment for the plant and its staff. End quote. All six reactors operated normally with no change in cooling or radiation levels. The two members of the IAEA who maintained a presence at ZNPP starting on September 1st were rotated yesterday, replaced by four observers who crossed into Russian-occupied territory. Director Grossi visited with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky on the situation at the ZNPP and the IAEA's proposal to set up a nuclear safety and security protection zone around the facility. Grossi will travel to the Russian Federation early next week to discuss demilitarizing the plant. The IAEA praised Ukraine's effort to maintain safe operations at the plant despite the military occupation, stating, quote, Over the past seven months, Ukrainian operating staff have worked to prevent a nuclear accident during the current military conflict in extremely difficult conditions, end quote. Valentin Reznichenko, Dnipropetrovsk Oblast Administrative and Military Governor, reported Nikopol and Marchanets were hit by more than 40 Grad rockets fired by multiple launch rocket systems, or MLRS. The attack damaged apartment buildings, homes, gas pipelines, and the electrical grid. No injuries were reported. Seventeen civilians were killed in a series of rocket attacks on Zaporizhia between October 6th and 7th. Russian forces fired missiles at civilians and civilian infrastructure on October 6th, striking apartment buildings and businesses, including a wine bar. Twelve fatalities were initially reported, with the number climbing to 14 on Friday and to 17 this morning. At least four more missiles were launched at the city on October 7th, with three reportedly intercepted. At the time of recording, there were no reports of shelling in Nikopol or Marchanets or missile attacks in Dnipropetrovsk. The Ukrainian counteroffensives have likely pushed Grad and Smirch rockets fired by MLRS out of the range of Kriviri. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. 
Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at malcontentnews. Now to the Donbas region, starting with southern Zaporizhia. We can really only report sporadic artillery fire from the Donetsk-Zaporizhia administrative border to Huliopol, Orikhiv, and Mali Shirbaki. There are significant rumors in the Russian information space that Ukrainian forces are preparing to launch a third counteroffensive from Huliopol toward Melitopol or Berdyansk, but we can't verify the veracity of the report. In southwest Donetsk, despite verifiable gains in several areas, the Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR, Militia Public Relations Channel did not report any fighting. They claim to have destroyed two tanks and eight, quote, armored and specialty vehicles. Ukraine executed over 210 fire missions on the occupied territory. Elements of the 1st Army Corps of the DNR attempted advances on Kamyanka and Andreevka, but could not move the line of conflict. The DNR militia made small gains in Pervomaiske, advancing one to two blocks into the village and likely taking control of the E-50 ring road strongpoints south of Piski and Pervomaiske. The continued attempts to advance on the Ukrainian firebase at Nevilske were not successful. In the short term, the DNR appears to have given up attempts to advance deeper into Marinka, continuing to try to flank the city by moving on Pobida, but remaining unable to advance into the town. The GSAFU reported fighting near Novomikhailivka with no change in the situation. In northeast Donetsk, Russian forces, largely private military company or PMC Wagner Group, have made advances toward Bakhmut after two and a half months of attempts. Russian forces continued their attempts to advance on Vyimka and are also trying to move from Milohorivka in Donetsk toward Vesele without success. Fighting continued on the southern edge of Bakhmutska led by PMC Wagner with no change in the situation. Fighting has become much more intense for control of Bakhmut, with Wagner mercenaries likely under pressure from leaders to accelerate success and strengthen the company's relationship with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Troops attempted to flank the city from the north, advancing on Krasnohora without success. Wagner Group occupied Vesela Dolina, advancing from the transformer farm on the eastern edge of the town, and captured Zaitseve, the Zaitseve southeast of Bakhmut. Mykolaiv Kudruha is now contested. It is the most significant gain since Kodema was captured over a month ago. The DNR claimed they took control of Odradivka, but did not provide any video or picture evidence. The 1st Army Corps of the DNR 3rd Brigade continued attacks on Mayorsk and occupied Zaitseve, the Zaitseve south of Bakhmut. War crime investigators discovered a second mass grave in Lehman with at least 200 bodies. This is in addition to the smaller site found on October 5th with at least 50 corpses. Investigators are determining if the dead are civilian, military or a combination of the both, and how they died. At the time of recording, they had not released any additional information.
Let's move on to Luhansk. The Borova City Council reported that Andreevka, which is just east of the administrative area and in Luhansk, received humanitarian aid from several NGOs, those are non-governmental organizations, confirming the town is liberated. Russian forces destroyed the dam north of Raikhorodka, causing flooding in the town. A former Russian G-lock, which runs from Borova to Svatov, cuts through the settlement. Ukraine took control of the key G-lock intersection on the Luhansk-Kharkiv border, Berchotradnieve, and the dam's destruction was a defensive measure to slow Ukraine's advance to the east. Svatov is now well within Ukrainian artillery range. Russian forces continue to set up defensive lines and reinforce the towns of Svatov and Kremina, while readily admitting that both towns will likely be bypassed and surrounded. Pro-Russian sources reported there was a HIMARS strike in Rubizhne. Ukrainian forces secured Makivka, 22 kilometers southwest of Svatov, which puts the critical Russian supply and logistics hub within artillery range. Ukrainian special operation forces continue to operate on the P-66 highway, which is under Ukrainian fire control. The highway runs between Svatov and Kremina, is closed to civilian traffic, and is a critical Russian G-lock. The situation in Kremina is calm, but Ukrainian forces appear to be working on developing an encirclement with reports of advances to the north and south of the town. Moving on to the Kharkiv region. The Borova City Council reported many communities received humanitarian aid this week following liberation, creating significant adjustments to the map. Confirmed liberated settlements include Zyarezova, Lozova, Vishnieve, Pershotravnieve, Kopanke, Novoserhivka, Chernyshina Proletarsky, Novoserhivka, and Chernyshina. According to the Council, all settlements have been cleared of Russian forces and have or will be receiving humanitarian aid shortly. Further note, pro-Russian sources claim Ukrainian troops are advancing on Pershotravnieve, Kiselivka, Tabayivka, and Berestov in Kharkiv, all east of Kupyansk. These settlements are within the final 2% of the Kharkiv Oblast, over which Ukraine does not hold administrative or military control. This is in addition to Russian claims that Ukraine is advancing on Orleansky. In the Black Sea, Crimea, and Odessa region, a large fire broke out on the Crimean Bridge this morning, cause unknown. The bridge has been closed to traffic, and trains between Russia and Crimea have reportedly been cancelled. While the exact cause of the explosion is still unknown as of the time of recording, it does not appear to have been caused by HIMARS, missiles, or an airstrike. Ihor Smilyansky, the general director of Ukraposhta, the Ukrainian National Postal Service, announced on Telegram a few hours later, quote, The morning has never been so good. On the occasion of the holiday, we are releasing a new stamp with the Crimean Bridge, or, more precisely, with what remains of it. End quote. Smilyansky included a picture of the stamp's artwork, 
which depicts the main characters from Titanic standing together at the edge of a broken section of bridge, as though they were on the bow of the ill-fated ship, looking off into the distance. In the background, a washing machine and a car with a Z painted on the windshield fall into the water below, and cotton plants grow through the cracks in the remaining roadway. A quick sidebar for those of you who may be newer to this podcast. Cotton is a play on words originating for the Russian word for clap, like clapping one's hands, which was used in Russian media to indicate an explosion. The Russian word for cotton, like the fiber or the plant, is written the same way, just pronounced slightly different. For Ukrainians, cotton, babovna, has come to mean an explosion in Russian or Russian-occupied territory, such as a base, ammunition depot, or airfield. In late August, the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense even released a statement on Twitter about a mythical creature called Bavonyatko, saying, quote, It is fluffy and restless. At night, Bavonyatko quietly sneaks into the occupier's bases, storage points, airfields, oil refineries, and other places filled with flammable goods, and begins to play with fire. End quote. Fun fact, yesterday was Russian President Vladimir Putin's birthday. In recognition of the occasion, Alexei Dinilov, Secretary of the National Security Council of Ukraine, shared on social media a video of the Crimean Bridge, on fire, alongside a video of Marilyn Monroe's famous performance of Happy Birthday, Mr. President. By the time we finished recording this episode, Sergei Oksyanov, head of the Occupation Administration of Crimea, had reported on Telegram that the Crimean Bridge had reopened for car traffic, saying, quote, the movement of motor transport across the Crimean Bridge has resumed. At the moment, the passage is open for cars and buses after they undergo a full inspection procedure. End quote. Aksyanov went on to direct trucks to the Kerch ferry crossing, saying the ferry would be available to transport people and vehicles within a few hours. At the ferry crossing, however, a kilometers-long line had already formed hours before as people started trying to leave the peninsula. And that's what we know. Join me again on Monday for more updates. In the meantime, don't forget to check in with David tomorrow for our Week in Review episode. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.